Welcome. Good morning. My name is Signe Lalish. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the president of your board of trustees. This morning, we gather together in worship to practice love, explore spirituality, build community, and promote justice. This morning, we will hear from our members and staff who attended General Assembly this summer. General Assembly, or GA, is the annual meeting of our Unitarian Universalist Association, also known as the UUA. Participants worship, witness, learn, connect, and make policy for the association through democratic process. Join us as we learn more about where our faith is heading and the lessons we each brought back. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Nicole Duff. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your director of membership development. I was fortunate to get to go to General Assembly this year to serve as both an eShore staff member and as the vice president of the Unitarian Universalist Association of Membership Professionals. This GA was a wonderful opportunity to connect with others from across the country, share ideas, and get inspired. For me, the most impactful moment was the opening celebration. Reverend Bill Singford, a former UUA president, gave a homily entitled The Transient and the Permanent. In this sermon, he starts by reminding us that as UUs, we are always wrestling with the question of who we are, how to belong wholeheartedly, and to help love win in the world. That wrestling happens because, as he says, the answers to those questions are always changing. What served us yesterday, those answers need to be tested against the needs of the new day. Our denomination has had a rough few years. Back in 2017, we faced a crisis, a division. To help calm things, Reverend Singford and two others were asked to share the role of president to help get us back on track. And even still, there's a little division. There are some UUs who question our commitment to anti-racist work and if it's the right choice for us. He said, we need to face our history of our commitment to transformation and our history of retreating from those very commitments. In 1997, the GA voted overwhelmingly to commit to anti-racism work. You can read more about that on our website. There was pushback, and the pushback on the offerings, and if the theology was, quote, you, you enough. Others claimed since UUs were not personally racist, they thought, does Unitarian Universalism need to change? There was pushback, and the pushback won. Before that, he shared, in 1969-71, the UUA decided to financially support the Black Affairs Council, a group made up of Black UUs, as a form of early reparations. They made the commitment, and then they reneged. There was pushback about if integration was really the answer, and the pushback won then, too. There were other chances to do more, opportunities we didn't take. Reverend Singford says the pushback is often whether or not the approach being is used, being used is you, you enough. He reminds us this is a type of perfectionism. And as many of us have learned, perfectionism is really about power and who gets to define what is good. 
Then he said the words that still give me chills. How many second chances do you think this faith will get? How many do you think this faith deserves? He reminded us in something I think we can all use, quote, if we knew what was guaranteed to work, we would have been living in the beloved community for decades. I wanted to share this because I think we could all use a reminder of where we were and where we want to be. A reminder that the approaches will never be perfect, but it can still move us forward. And don't we want to move forward? Thank you. Hello. For those who don't remember, um, I'm Signe Lailish I go by she, her pronouns. Um, GA is such an engaging place. It's full of positive energy and, uh, and lots of people all there for the same ultimate purpose to learn, grow, make mistakes and become better together. A seminar that really stuck with me was about class. It touched on how everyone will tell you they are middle class, couch surfers to millionaires, using a very interesting mathematical breakdown of what our parents were like when we were 12, we were able to put ourselves in class categories. Predominantly, our groups consisted of upper middle class and wealthy categories. What was interesting is hearing the varying stories of people in each group and teasing out how we got there. The disparities in income and lifestyle were great, but the stories of privilege and access to upward mobility were varied. This isn't a bad thing, but something to be aware of. Mark W. Harris, the author of Elite Uncovering Classism in Unitarian Universalism History, wrote, The essential question is, who belongs with us? Sometimes Unitarian Universalists believe the stereotype that we are only educated suburbanites when it clearly is not true. Many Unitarian Universalists live in marginal economic circumstances or do not have college educations. I too came from a background of limited economic means. My parents' parents were well-to-do, but mine chose a downwardly mobile lifestyle. To live below the poverty line and live off the land. I was reminded in Africa recently, I'm admitting just how elitist this sounds right now, so it's okay to laugh. Uh, just how wealthy my parents really were when I explained that we had no running water or electricity, but we had oil lamps. Apparently, only the rich families of long ago had those. The tribes there in Livingstone, Zambia, wrote that prior to English colonization, they never really felt poor. They were happy and content with their life. It was the British who told them they were poor and were missing something from their lives and made the tribes feel as though something was wrong with them. I remember the same thing happening to me as a child. My life was quite happy and content. The only time I ever felt it wasn't was when another child made me feel I was missing out for some reason. 
Are we making assumptions or just accepting accepting people for who they are? Let's start by asking newcomers about what brings them joy instead of what they do for work. When we stop to recognize classism and call it out, we can begin to make change to affect how we make our policies within our own church, how we spend the money, and who is representing those decisions, for example. How we use language that is accessible to a wider swath of people so we aren't only speaking to the groups we know and feel comfortable with, those who speak English as a native language, for example, or never graduated high school, etc. In conclusion, I echo what Mark writes here. The institutional goal of diversity and the theology of universalism can only be realized through personal connection. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Grace Colton. I went to General Assembly still reeling from the pandemic and adjusting to an uncertain new normal. I feared I would hear theology I couldn't relate to my lived experience or others' experiences or calls to action with little leadership or response from Unitarian Universalists. What, I wondered, could happen at General Assembly to lift me up? It turned out lots of things. President Susan Frederick Gray connected to our theological legacy how it can be used to find joy, comfort, a path to liberation, and affirmed our commitment to those who are marginalized, despite some Unitarian Universalists having been supporters of eugenics, slavery, and segregation in the past. She also spoke of plans to invest in increasing children, youth, and family ministry, a digital music resource for a multi-platform era, a hub for multi-generational age-appropriate resources for dismantling racism and oppression in our communities, growing opportunities for lay leader development across congregations, increasing scholarships to those aspiring to UU ministry and religious professional leadership, and more funding for the UUA The Vote 2022. Amazingly, I found being a delegate uplifting. You could attend GA for free as an online delegate this year. How's that for access? The two contested UUA board spots easily went to people supportive of anti-racism work. A review of the UUA's bylaws, an archaic set of words, was quickly approved. The Article 2 Commission, people looking at updating our principles and sources, shared their current thoughts on Unitarian Universalism's purpose, principles, and sources. They asked for input from the delegates. They were already asking the wider UU world. Next year, their work will be voted on at GA. When the Dobbs decision was announced, Reverends Keithan and Haran gave us a loving reality check on the state of reproductive justice today and urged us to build on intersectional movement. By the way, Reverend Susan Frederick Gray rocked the Portland's protest march when she represented all you use loudly and proudly. You know what? All the things I've mentioned came from recommendations in the 2020 Widening the Circle report. I'm a big fan of it. The UUA board has taken it to heart. They're using it as a blueprint for the future of the UUA and Unitarian Universalism. It centers the perspective of those that have been marginalized in Unitarian Universalism and the wider world. Hmm. 
What if Ishar did that? I left GA feeling excited, hopeful, and lifted by the spiritual work happening across Unitarian Universalism. The EUA is changing. Susan Frederick Gray spoke of feeling a fundamental shift going on. Our courage is rising, she said. We are figuring out how to heal, grow, and resist. I think she is right to say a road is being built for us to be the people we are called to be. Hi, I'm Paul Burens, a member of the congregation. I use he, him pronouns. I want to talk about my third experience at General Assembly. Well, I went to one in Portland some years back, the last time it was in Portland, and I went to the one in Spokane before the pandemic. And I was reluctant to go to my third GA, but what convinced me was that I had enjoyed the first two. So that was enough to push me over, and I went down to Portland and spent five days staying in a dormitory at Portland State U and uh, trying to gain a continental perspective on our movement. Back in Spokane, I had met Paula Cole Jones and I had been grabbed by her uh, lecture about the community of communities and understood better community versus individuality in our movement. And I started my eighth principle work and continued that here at East Shore. I was also confronted uh, in in uh, Spokane by the Gadfly papers that were dropped on everybody. Uh, individualism objecting to widening the community. In Portland, I was inspired by Bill Sinkford, a guy I met when I was 14, uh, when he was in college, uh, who opened the GA. And I was inspired by meeting and seeing again Asia Hauser over and over during the days we were there and by Julica Hernan de Fuentes and talking about the uh, eighth principle. And then finally by Ibram X. Kendi, who uh, gave the Ware Lecture as an interview with our inspiring president, Susan Frederick Gray. And I was also challenged while I was there. There were supposed to be protesters from the fifth principle group, the same folks who had supported the Gadfly Papers three years earlier. And they were outside just handing out leaflets. And I got the impression that these folks were there to persuade me, but not willing to listen to anybody else. Uh, and then we had multiple episodes in plenary session from the Article II Commission asking for feedback. And I found myself having to sit next to a neighbor, talk to him in person about Article II and discovered immediately that he was one of the very few people inside the convention center wearing a gadfly button. So I tested to find out and realized I was right. This guy had no interest whatsoever in learning any from anything from anyone else. He was a know-it-all. He'd read everything, he knew everything, and he knew they were all wrong. And he was right. Very interesting talking to somebody like that. And they were a tiny minority. Um, they organized to vote against a couple of trustees and wound up with less than 10% of the vote. So it confirmed my knowledge of change management, too, that you should stick with the early adopters if you want to change things. They'll bring along the majority and not worry about the people who are against everything because they always will be, and they'll eventually come dragging along behind like a sea anchor. So... General Assembly was really inspiring, and I'm glad to be able to leave a video for my peeps 
I've been a member since 1990. It's a long time coming already. And I still love my East Shore. So thanks for letting me say something. Good morning. Hi, my name is David Langrock, and I use he, him pronouns. And I'm a member of your board of trustees here at East Shore. Today, I want to talk about briefly about ideas raised by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi uh, in the Ware Lecture conversation that he had with UUA President Susan Frederick Gray at GA. I had certainly been aware of Dr. Kendi and most specifically his books about anti-racism. And I'd heard him speak before this talk. So I was still surprised at how much I would be moved by some of what feels like foundational concepts of his work. Dr. Kendi believes that identifying people as opposed to behaviors as racist is fundamentally unhelpful. Turning racism into an identity comforts those who are not easily identifiable as racist. I'm not in the KKK or the Proud Boys. I'm not a racist. In ideologically liberal spaces such as ours, even predominantly white communities, I doubt anyone is a racist by that measure. And yet, we all have a lifetime of opportunity to be more anti-racist, to daily intentionally practice honesty and vulnerability about our behaviors, some of which are racist, some of which are anti-racist. And I, I know from experience that this can be painful. In his book, My Grandmother's Hands, Resma Menachem calls this clean pain. It is the pain that mends and can build our capacity for growth. It is the pain we experience when we don't know what to do, when we're scared, and we step forward into the unknown anyway with honesty and vulnerability. Kendi further stated that everyone is capable of both racist and anti-racist uh, thoughts and behaviors. And I believe this is a way of understanding, this way of understanding can, can and should be extended to all dimensions of oppression. My thoughts from GA as I return to my life and my work here at East Shore is to push away these easy and comforting reductions of oppressive identity and leaning into this clean pain of vulnerability. I want to contribute to our community by holding myself and every space I'm in accountable to the anti-oppression principle we affirmed when we passed the eighth principle last year. So I look forward to facing this hard and rewarding work with each and every one of you. Thank you.